All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. What the fuck was that? Standard issue for all women. Hello, and welcome to episode 156 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm not Mickey Noonan, nor am I Hannah Dunleavy, but I am Jen Offord, and I have had my first COVID vaccination, just in case you were wondering. We're doing things a bit differently for the next couple of weeks, so no Bush Telegraph for you this week. Boo! And a lovely break from the news for us. Yay! We do, nonetheless, have a tremendous pod scene for your ears, as always. This week, Mickey chats to playwright Lisa Parry about her new play, The Mirth Astigmatist, the need for teenage girls to be heard, small town whales, and that time a cockatiel decapitated the baby Jesus. Hannah chats to Judith McCrell about her new book, Going with the Boys, Six Extraordinary Women Writing from the Front Line, which is a group biography of, as the name would suggest, six women working as Second World War correspondents. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm chatting all things French open, and in Rated or Dated, we're hailing the four corners of shite special effects as we watch 1996's The Craft. Dig in! Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by playwright Lisa Parry. Lisa, hello. Hello, morning. In Wales we say Borida, so Borida. You don't have a Welsh accent though, are you Are you a native Welsh? I'm half-half, so my dad's side's all from Merthyr and I grew up in the Midlands and then we kind of leapfrogged around England for ages and we're in London and then we've been in Cardiff now for nine years, just over nine years I think. And do you speak any Welsh? I do, I've learned. It's taken me eight years and I've still probably got about another three, four years to go until I'd be like, I'm fluent and I can cope. But I can have conversations and then if people speak Welsh, I will speak Welsh. Yeah, my kids go to Welsh language school, so we speak a lot of Welsh at home and then obviously I'll be locked down and stuff. I was trying to homeschool them in Welsh, which was like an interesting added addition to it. But no, I absolutely love it and it's great because it just means you can you can access more of the culture here as well like you just can it's just brilliant to be able to do that in the first language and like as a writer it's quite cool because now whenever I choose words my brain's kicking in with the Welsh words so I've kind of got that which one option do I go and I think it makes my English a bit more expressive as well oh that's excellent your new play the Merthyr Stigmatist is set Mm -hmm. in Merthyr Tidville but before we chat about it 
I've got to say, it was originally scheduled as part of the Sherman Theatre's autumn 2020 season. But yeah. and, uh, not for the first time, I am gesturing wildly at the world at large. That happened. So how has the past year been for you as a playwright? Well, it was really difficult because I, I could kind of sense it was coming. And I was up at um, Theatre Cloyd in um, North Wales. They do writers' residencies. So I'd gone up there for two weeks and I was staying at Gladstone's Library, which is like lush and, you know, gorgeous. And then I was in and out of Cloyd and I was kind of watching the news and I could sense it and I could sense it. And then when Boris did his whole don't go to the theatre thing, I could hear footsteps going on outside the writer's room. And I was like, this is not good. This is not good. And I could feel it building and feel it building. And then I was like, I need to go home because if I don't get back and I get COVID, I'm going to have to isolate. And if I isolate, maybe the half's a consultant in A&E at the hospital. Right. So I was like, he'd taken time off to have the kids so I could disappear for a bit. And then I was like, I need to get back because they're going to shut the schools. And he obviously was needed in. So I drove through Wales, got back, and within three days we were we were totally back into it. As a writer, when I was up there, I was like, I've got to finish this draft. I need to finish a draft before this hits because I think my life's just about to go totally upside down. I managed to get that done, which was great. And then when I got back, we were into homeschooling and then he was obviously in work nonstop. And it was really intense because obviously like homeschooling was just full on anyway. And then he was going in and then I knew he was going in to work within COVID and COVID areas and PPE and all of that stuff was going on. And then there'd be like WhatsApp messages from colleagues. He'd be like, I've got a temperature. And then he'd be sort of reading the stuff in the evening about what was happening and all of this stuff. And then you're immediately like, oh, you know, my children, I need to protect them and da, da, da. And then I was like, and I've got this play. And I wasn't sure how I'd react to it. Part of me was like, I'm going to be like, no, no, theatre, no, totally for free. I'm not going to do it. I've got like husband going in, life on the line. I've got children to protect. And actually what happened was I was like, I I still want to work on this play. And this play feels really vital and needed, even though all of this is going on. And I love theatre. And I started to really, I was yearning for that connection when we're all together. And I was like, theatre is so important. It's so important. And I, I was really glad it went that way. And then when I was writing it as well, because it was my time away from stress, I went more into my imagination, I think, than I would have done before, purely because it was an escape. And when everybody's literally like, why do you write? Why do you write? Why do you write? And you always sort of feel like you have to have this worthy answer. I've got a brilliant worthy answer, which is, but you change the way people think. If you sort of suggest one thing, even through a metaphor, and they're like, I've never thought about that before. It's revolutionary. You can then go and think about other things differently. And that's like my stock answer for why do you write but actually with this it was like I think I wrote to stay sane yeah yeah like I could totally escape there's a slight aspect of control in both scenarios right so there's control of your own brain or a little bit of control over someone else's yeah yeah totally totally and it was just great because I I don't think I'd done that properly since I was a child like just that complete intense I'm totally in my imagination now yeah and it really helped me reconnect with it in a really lovely way and then obviously as it was going on I was I did a bit of online theatre I did some sort of like short plays Cloyd were great so I wrote a piece for them that was used in the community that they sort of gave out to kids and families to do just at home just to try and keep their creativity up which was which was really really lovely and then I wrote some shorts for the internet yeah with this one it was just like no I kept going with it you've said that you retreated into your imagination but it's very much grounded in reality to an extent because as someone raised a catholic i am a bit fascinated by stigmata and that just for any listeners who don't know is the appearance of bodily wounds scars and pain in locations that correspond to the crucifixion wounds of jesus christ so that's the hands the wrists and the feet usually and also fascinated with those who claim to have received them which goes back donkeys so tell us about Caris our hero I don't know in the Merthyr Stigmatist I love her she's kind of who I'd want to be like I look back at me at 16 and I'm like I wish I'd been like her (laughs) she's great Bolshe as anything Merthyr girl 16 year old has been claiming that she's had the wounds of Christ for about a year is just complete hear me hear me this is happening to me and then in the play she's in a classroom with a teacher who just thinks she's completely insane and it's that kind of cry to be heard that guttural howl to be heard Mm -hmm. from a 16 year old girl who's going around in a catholic school going hey i've got the stigmata and then he's just referencing it and running intellectual rings around the teacher with it because she knows her stuff Uh 
But what was absolutely gorgeous writing Caris, I mean, I could just write Caris for days. I just adore her. But it's the fact that there's the Merthyr dialect coming through with her as well. And the richness of being able to use that language was just an absolute joy. And then when we cast Bethan McLean, who's from Merthyr, who lives in Merthyr now, and just to hear that accent in the rehearsal room, it was like my heart just sang. And it was brilliant. I'm like, that's home. Everything I know from being a kid and actually being that age as well. Yeah. You know, it was was awesome. I just, yeah, I absolutely adore her. It's really rich fodder, I think, because teenage girls, I think it's such, such a tricky and undermined age for girls. At Catholic school, again, there was a lot of fainting. There was a lot of disordered eating. You know, back in the day, girls would run off and become a nun. It's such a tricky time for girls that they're noticed whether they want to be noticed or not. And it's no wonder that some either shout louder, in Karis's case, or try to disappear, try to make their femaleness disappear. Was that something that you were thinking about when you wrote her? Yeah, and I think it comes out whenever you're talking about girls of that age, especially now, like you can't write a character like that without being aware of social pressures, things like that I didn't have to deal with. And looking at it now, like, thank God, you know, Instagram, I I just can't even think about that and I look at my daughter and she's six and I'm like I, I'm going to have to help you navigate this world and I, I'm i not sure how I'm going to do that yet like it's it's really really difficult but I think what's really interesting in the play is we've got Sean as well who in this production was cast as about sort of 35, 36 and she's almost like an older version of Carrie. she's kind of lived through that and then reacted to that in a really different way she got out and then she's come back in and sort of watching an older and younger version of Welsh femaleness I guess it was quite interesting and watch them help each other navigate that territory Stigmata's got this long old history and the first case of Stigmata was recorded back in 1224 so what got you interested in that specifically and why have you brought it back in 2021 well the Stigmata it's such a weird thing so basically my entire family converted to Catholicism when I was a teen right a very young teen wowzers So I kind of had to navigate this world because obviously when you're that age, you don't really get a lot of choice. Like it's just somewhere you're dragged on a Sunday. And Mm -hmm. then we went to Catholic school. Well, I went to Catholic sixth form. My parents have been quite high Anglican before then anyway. So you kind of grow up in this world that you think is kind of quite normal until you're an adult who doesn't really go anymore. And then obviously like none of your friends are in it. And and you're like, God, that was a bit strange. So they were like... (laughs) um, my mother would have prayer cards on the fridge and one was Padre Pio who was like a stigmatist and I'm sure there was a little bit of a scab or something and you just look at it and you go oh my god this is so strange and then we'd always have a picture of the Pope on the wall which they'd just decorate with tinsel yep and then my husband had come back like when we were going out and stuff and he was like what the hell is this like what is this well <laughs> why have you got a Christmas Pope yeah and then my dad had this statue of Jesus oh, when he appeared to the child I can't remember which one it was and I remember I think the cockatiel that we had or something landed on the dresser and knocked it off the top and decapitated it. So this was obviously not good. So I remember coming back and the, and the child Jesus was in like a vice and my dad was super gluing its head back on. And I'm like, this is, it's kind of like Derry Girls on acid. You know, like the, <laughs> it's so uh, surreal. Like, it's so full on. So I'd always kind of got this sort of interest, I guess. Not like in an evangelical, this stuff's all true, but I'd always got a kind of like slightly detached view on it all anyway and I was really really interested so I did a load of research on it just when I went off on one and one of my like oh that's quite interesting I'll do some stuff I might use that one day and you sort of I took it all the way through to the present day with the research and then filed it then when I was thinking about voices and how you don't hear voices from Martha and you certainly don't hear voices of 16 year old girls taken seriously and it's almost like what is the most insane thing that she could say that's true and she's telling you it's true and that everybody would just automatically shut her down on and she's got the stigmata and there's a line in the play like you'd believe me if I was from Monmouth or the Mumbles and the teacher's like no I wouldn't like what are you talking about of course I wouldn't but she's like but you would because you're dismissing me because of my social class you're dismissing me because I'm a female you know and it's, t- it's so out there that she's got this but she's just sticking to her guns. I've got to ask, what was the shift in your family? Why, when you were in your teenage years, did they decide to leave Anglicanism and become Catholics? It was really weird. Like, I think some of it had to do at the time there was that whole the, the women priests thing coming through the Church of England and my parents at the time were very old school. 
I say this now, I'm a complete die-in-the-wall feminist. Like, I totally disagree with them on absolutely everything. Oh, I mean, that's fairly clear, to be honest with you, Lisa. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, looking back at it, I think it was kind of mainly that. And I think they were partly drawn to a community side of it with it as well. And then obviously we've got the Catholic school, the Catholic sixth form and stuff was closer. So I, I, I've no idea whether that fed in. I mean, they are outliers in people who have decided that the Catholics have got better priests. I mean, that's unusual. Yes, very <laughs> unusual. But then you look back at it and actually some of it, I think going every week was quite a positive experience because at the time I didn't see a lot of people with cerebral palsy. I didn't see a lot of people with Down syndrome. I didn't see a lot of people from different cultures and communities. And actually, that was where I saw them. At church? Was it at, at the church? Because that was just where I saw them. And there was the whole, where I grew up as well, it was very, very multicultural. But people had come in from different communities and then kept their religion going. And, and literally, that was the sphere where I saw people who weren't white, who who got problems, who were being helped through. And it sort of expanded my mind a bit. And the outlook was very global as well. So there were some things about it that were really, really positive. Obviously, as a feminist, you know, I have um, and someone who reads a lot of history about various things that have happened. And oh, know, Lisa, I, we could I do a whole different it, podcast but... on this because, yeah, yeah I, I'm nodding. I'm nodding listeners. <laughs> Let's go back to the play, though. The whole thing with stigmata and what happens within the myth of stigmatist is that collision of faith, reason and politics. And it makes the play really vital because we have just seen that when it's come to the pandemic. Yeah, massively, massively. And what was quite interesting as well with Beth and Mary James's interpretation of Shan, she really wanted to look at her religion and her belief in God and brought that side to it, which was quite interesting to watch her manifest on stage. But yeah, in terms of politics and COVID, especially with it being set in Mirtha, Mirtha had Mirtha was hit hard. Right. Mirtha was hit really, really hard by COVID for, for various reasons, you know. And I think one of the most heartbreaking I found it really difficult because when we went into localized lockdown here because I'm in North Cardiff and it's only like about half an hour 40 minutes in the car and I couldn't go I was I was meant to be going around the castle to look at some paintings for some research for a play and they were like you can't come because you don't live in Merthyr and I was like you can't shut me out of Merthyr that's where I love (laughs) that's like the place where I do but yeah it was hit really hard and I think what I found really difficult was how people were then saying oh they're just all stupid there like it's been hit really hard because they're just going into each other's houses and like here's the thing and I'm like, well, are you surprised? Are you genuinely surprised? There is no industry there. You've pulled absolutely everything out. What you've got is a close-knit community that supports each other. And now you're saying you can't do that. There isn't the money there that sees people traveling to work in cars. So people are on local transport more. You know, there's a whole thing there where people have managed to actually cling together to stay mentally strong. And you're expecting to remove that from them. And all of the things you're telling them to do, they can't afford to do. And then rather than actually try and understand the reasons why, it was just something else that they could club a Mirtha with. And I, I found that really, really difficult. I am so bored of this narrative that whatever happens, whether it's seen as a bad decision or something's gone wrong, oh, well, we'll just blame the working class because they're clearly stupid. And it's yeah. it's just so dull and so false. Yeah. And actually, if you look at, Mirtha. I mean, the same is true of other places, but obviously I've got more of an emotional connection to Mirtha. How do you get that voice out? Because on like, on a Welsh level, because of the Senate, they can elect and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of, it's a little bit more fair because we've got the list system as well. But in terms of a UK system, Mirtha can send a Labour MP or applied MP or whoever slightly left weaning they wish to Westminster time and time and time again. But in terms of actually having a say, unless England votes that way, you're going to have a Tory government. Absolutely. So you you feel dis, you feel disenfranchised from the off with the electoral system that we've got here, and I think that's really really dangerous. It, it's slightly improved because we've got the Senate and certain things here are devolved, but we don't have the power that Scotland's got. So you know you're coming up feeling disenfranchised as a kid. I think that's a really really difficult thing to to navigate through. Absolutely. I, I am I'm, again nodding, listeners. I couldn't agree with you more. And obviously some devolution has been helpful and I think Drakeford has has sort of proven himself to be pretty good he's taken responsibility for Wales but yeah there's only so far you can get if you're left wing at all and a Tory government keeps getting in you know or you're dissatisfied with Labour and what they're offering at the moment I feel like we're all over a bit of a barrel 
Let's yeah. get back to Karis, because Karis is, as you say, a 16-year-old girl who desperately wants to be heard. And I definitely think teenagers have suffered massively because of the pandemic, not necessarily with with death or even the fear of dying, which clearly has been fucking horrific for so many people, but with lockdown. It feels yeah. like they've been first on the list of people to blame for any increase in spreading and last on the list of people who deserve any sort of consideration or help. And it's not fair. And I sort of, I look back to me at 16 and think, okay, if I'd have just been in that, how would I have just cope just even with GCSEs A levels like trying to do all your lessons online uh-huh. my cousin's got a kid of a sort of similar age he's going into a GCSEs now and she's literally like she's just missed a year's worth of school you know and the consequences of this pushing through and also how do you help them catch up but without putting a catch-up narrative on it because mentally yeah. they just need to come out of this whole thing sane and happy and and all of that stuff rather than clobbering them with loads and loads more maths which seems to be the way that we're yeah. going, which mm-hmm. I'm literally like, they have to be able to function in the world as human beings. This is not good. And they've also witnessed so much. I think because we're living it day to day, it's not until you pause and take a step back and go, hang on, these kids have literally just seen, have experienced a heck of a lot of death and a heck of a lot of fear. And it's still rumbling on. No one's prepped for that. Like I'm still mentally dealing with some of the stuff that we've seen. And it's how do you actually help them then move into the into the world and I think what's interesting in the play is that actually Sean's trying desperately to help Karis right she's just going the wrong way around about it until she actually listens to her and that was quite an interesting thing to watch on stage because I watched um obviously because we've recorded it and I watched the recordings and I got to the end and I was like why is this play different like what is it and I, I was really racking my brains about it and obviously I'm so close to it it's a hard one to navigate and it's a pressure cooker play, so they're locked in a room and it's just two of them for the whole hour. And I was like, because every other play, there's been a man in there that I've seen in that situation. Yeah. And then you've got the testosterone surgeon and one breaks the other and there's all of this stuff. And actually, these two support each other and they prop each other up. And that felt really radical to me that they both go on these journeys, but actually the take-home is you've got two women who support each other. That's so good as well, because I think a lot of male pens are still in the habit of writing women who they pit against each other, like all women are in competition. Yeah, yeah. I think that's because they project on a little bit. But no yes. way. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. <laughs> all of the male writing that I've seen. Um, yeah, and that was quite interesting as well because because obviously like I'm female and then we've got the two actors in there who are both female and then the director was female and then our assistant director was female and the set designer was female and our composer was female. So we've got sound and lights who are male, but it was a very female rehearsal room. And I don't think I've been in one that female dominated before. And it it, it made a difference. It changed things. I mean, Lisa, there's a reason we've got you on standard issue. Yeah. <laughs> Bang up our alley. So The Mirth Astigmatist is a co-production with Theatre Uncut, which is celebrating its 10th birthday. Happy birthday, Theatre Uncut. It's recorded in the Sherman Theatre and streams from tomorrow, which is Thursday the 27th of May, until Saturday the 12th of June. Lisa, where can people find out more about it? If you go to the Sherman website, shermantheatre.co.uk, and then click through, there's links and stuff. But also the Sherman Twitter feed, um, which I think is twitter.com slash Sherman Theatre, is putting things up like production photos, and there'll be a very exciting trailer coming. So there's clips and things and all their media stuff on there as well. But yeah, if you go to the Sherman website and click through, then you can sort of see. But the good thing is, as well, it's on demand. So this is the other thing that I've noticed during lockdown. As someone who needs to put her kids to bed at night, watching theatre at seven o'clock is not ideal. Uh-huh. And I was literally like, there's a reason why I leave, left the house for this before. So the nice thing is, I think after the first night, when you buy the link, you've got that link for 24 hours. So you can watch it whenever fits your schedule, which oh, I know nice. for a lot of women is not traditionally seven, half seven in the evening. Brilliant. And thank you so, so much for joining us. No, no worries at all. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Judith McCrell, author of Going With The Boys, Six Extraordinary Women Writing From The Front Line. Thank you very much for joining us, Judith. Thank you for having me. This is a great book. I've just said to you, I'm about halfway through it and it really does what it says on the tin. They are six extraordinary women three of whom I had heard of, Martha Gale Thorne, Lee Miller, 
Helen Kirkpatrick. Three, I hadn't. Virginia Cowles, Sigrid Schultz and Claire Hollingworth. I mean, it seems a redundant question for me to say, why did you want to write about them? Because they're amazing. But how did this book come to be? It's a pretty bizarre book for me to be writing in the first place since I started out life as a writer as a dance critic of The Independent and then The Guardian. So kind of moving from tutus to tanks was quite a stretch for me, although I had written other biographies about other women. And in fact, it was while I was writing my previous book, which was about three women who lived in Venice, I came across just a little anecdote about Helen Kirkpatrick, actually. And it was weirdly in a book a rather decadent book, which was a history of the Ritz Hotel in Paris. I thought it had nothing to do with the war. It had this little anecdote about this young American female correspondent who'd got to Paris the day after it was liberated and who'd been invited to lunch with Ernest Hemingway, you know, the most swaggering, entitled Mm -hmm. male journalist in history, practically. And he'd invited her to lunch at the Ritz Hotel And they were busy trading war stories and he was drinking wine that had been brought up from the cellars, which he claimed to have liberated from the Nazis, which wasn't true at all. And at a certain point, she said, look, lovely lunch, but Paris has just been liberated. Actually, there are 50,000 Germans still in the city trying to hold up the Allied advance. I've got some reporting to do. And he was like, sit still, daughter. You'll Mm. never be able to say you've been dining in the Ritz with Hemingway the day Paris was liberated ever again. And she's like, yeah, but there's history being made outside. So she goes off. She ends up just outside Notre Dame Cathedral, where there's a service for the resistance workers led by General de Gaulle. And just as they're moving into the cathedral, all these hidden German snipers start opening fire on the crowd and on General de Gaulle. And it's an absolute near massacre. I mean, 25 people are killed. And she was the one print reporter there on the scene. And I thought, what an amazing anecdote. You know, not only the courage she had in staying in that cathedral while German bullets were hailing down over the congregation, but even in just putting up a finger to Hemingway and leaving that lunch. So I found that There was actually quite a lot about her online. She'd done a very extensive interview at the end of her life. And I really wanted to write about her. I knew she wasn't kind of well enough known to withstand a a biography all of her own. Mm. But as I read around her and realised what battles she had fought to actually get permission to write about the war and how those battles were true of all the women who tried to get to the Mm. front line, I realised there was a really good, more generalised story to tell. And researching around, I found six seemed a good number and I found other five to go with her. I mean, Martha Gellhorn and Lee Miller are obviously much better known Mm. and, you know, they're in a way my poster girls. Yeah. But each of them had amazing stories that sometimes made them coincide as they were covering the war, but sometimes took them to completely different places. I had heard of Helen Kirkpatrick because of some stuff she'd written. She was in London during the Blitz, wasn't she? Mm, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'd seen her name just crop up in in something I'd seen about the Blitz. But as you say, just mm. really as an aside, you hit a point there when you talk about Ernest Hemingway because their stories are so incredible. They've got kind of a Forrest Gump feel to them in that if it was drama, it would seem on the nose. Schultz meets Hitler and manages to offend him. Cowles managed to accidentally wangle an interview with Mussolini. There's Eleanor Roosevelt. There's Ernest Hemingway. There's the Duke of Windsor. How did you... Oh, look, the question I've written here is, how did you tackle the sheer fucking hell of it all? Which isn't a great question. I'll work that a bit better. How hard was it to keep the benefit of hindsight from affecting how you wrote about those major moments? That's a really good question because, yes, the temptation, especially with a subject as well-documented as the Second World War, is to resist writing just a history, is is to try and keep the sense of the fact that those women were writing history fresh on the day it happened and that they were discovering their own capacities as war correspondents. They were encountering the war fresh each day. 
So yeah, it, for me, it was a bit like trying to write an adventure story. <laughs> you know, it was a bit like a return to the war comics my brothers read yeah. when I was growing up. That although you're trying to give the reader the context, the, the factual context, okay, this was the political or the military events in which these individual incidents were occurring. You need to balance that with a sense that actually you're telling a narrative, you're telling a good story. Mm. And I wanted the reader to try and feel some of that kind of pulse racing excitement that those women must have had. Well, you make a really, really good decision. I don't know if it was your decision, but there is a really good decision made in this, which is to write it chronologically rather than write it as six individual biographies. So you do get that sense of gathering pace because this starts way before the Second Mm. World War. So they are reporting on the events in the lead up to it. And also, if people aren't too sure of the history, it helps explain Mm. that to them. But also exactly that, you can see how their stories intersect. And in many ways, that makes it feel or makes it read like fiction. Mm. And I kept thinking the whole way through it, there is absolutely definitely like a 10 part HBO drama <laughs> we at the centre of this and I really hope that the next person who thinks yeah. that has the power to make that happen yeah. because it does yeah. it actually feels like really cinematic yeah I presume when you made that decision that's exactly what you were hoping for well not so much the HBO series I mean going back to the whole chronological thing and one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was that you know I'm a child of the 50s and 60s so the war was really present when I was growing up but of course it was such recent history that we never learnt about it in school you saw it in the films you you know as I said my brother's war comics whereas my children seem to have studied nothing but World War II yeah (laughs) a level GCSE whatever so part of it was my simple desire to get to grips with how this incredibly complicated and geographically far-flung conflict how it all pieced together and I was really fortunate because I didn't entirely plan it this way that each of my six women, the course of their war careers actually gave me almost the entire story of the war. And yes, I mean, the war itself is such a huge story that framing their stories within the larger story of the war just gave the overall narrative a fantastic propulsion, you know, which I couldn't have invented whether something is brave or whether something is foolhardy is very much in the eye of the beholder. And there are a lot of incidents in this where I think that line is very blurred. I don't know if these women are being brave or they're being stupid or certainly naive or, like I say, foolhardy. How much of that do you think came from their personalities and how much of it came from a desire to prove that they could do what male reporters could do Mm. or more than male reporters could do I think with all of them it was an equal complicated mix of both those things Claire Hollingworth who famously scooped the outbreak of World War II the initially the German invasion of Poland and then the outbreak of World War II when she was just a week into her reporting career Uh, you know Obviously, she, she was overconfident, over naive, yeah. over foolhardy, you know, and she, she, even she, who later admitted it, it was madness, she borrowed a diplomatic car and drove over the German border just to see if she could find some evidence of the planned German invasion. Knowing full well she had no accreditation, she had no business to be there. She could easily have been mm. shot or imprisoned as a spy, but she probably didn't know any better not much further into her career, the desire to outscoop her rivals became, I would say, the overriding concern for her. For Siegfried Schultz, who from 1933 was, as a bureau chief in Berlin, was taking extraordinary risks in order to report accurately about what was going on under Adolf Hitler and the criminal Nazi state. For her, there was an equal sense of rivalry. She wanted to do better than the other men. But there was also a huge moral commitment. Fundamentally, what mattered to her was getting the truth out there. She'd lived in Berlin since 1913. It was her adopted home. She loved the city and she was horrified 
to see what was being perpetrated and also how little of it was being reflected in the world press. Mm. Not all the truth, though, because what, what Shippy mentioned about her was that she was hiding the fact that she was Jewish. Yes. Which is, again, like I say, if you wrote it in a novel, you would say yeah, that's exactly. really on the nose. Yeah, that's just a detail too far. Yeah. And not only was she Jewish, she was helping Jews who wanted to escape Berlin. So she was working with the German underground. She did experience death threats, Gestapo interrogation. Like Claire Hollingworth, it was it was that mix of foolhardiness, bravado, professional pride, but a real moral integrity, real moral courage. And likewise with Martha Gellhorn, she's not allowed to cover the D-Day landings in June 1944 because women are excluded from the forward areas of mm. battle. But it's a story, she, she wants to be the, the eyes and ears and the heart of her American readers. She knows she can write it as well as, if not better, than her male peers. So she rides stowaway on a hospital ship to Normandy and is one of the first journalists to actually touch French soil and to witness the horrific carnage of mm. the D-Day landings. Sometimes you've got to put it in perspective as well. I mean, until Eleanor Roosevelt came into the White House, she was the first person, because she famously said, I'm going to hold press yeah. conferences that only women can come to. Mm. Because up until that point, women had actually been barred from from attending press yeah. conferences in the White House, yeah. which... Yeah. So this is happening simultaneously as these women are out in the world. Yeah. I find it incredible. And I think the question of foolhardiness or braveness, I think still actually is a question that exists in journalism. I mean, mm. if you looked at someone like Marie Colvin, who yeah, yeah. said that Martha Gellhorn was certainly her hero, and it cost her her life being a journalist. Mm. And there is a question mm. of whether... She needed to take those decisions. And I mean, to me, I would say that was her decision. It was her decision mm. that she could make mm. that. But that still does exist. These women were single, mostly. Mm. Or if they did have husbands and partners, it was a confusing and difficult time for them. And they were young. And I think that kind of willingness to put your life on the line when you haven't got dependence you haven't got any responsibilities really other than to yourself and your own moral code and your own career. That's probably a very different thing. And it was very poignant to me to write the final chapter, which kind of wraps up their lives mm. after the war and to trace how difficult it was for nearly all of them to make the transition from war into peace. Because mm. when you've been living in this present tense, this very urgent, terrifying present tense for five years, when you've been on a knife edge of life and death, when you feel you've been working on a project that's so much larger and important than yourself, the idea of settling back down to a more domesticated or a more serene existence, they all found extremely difficult. Mm. Martha Gellhorn admitted, you know, war, however hateful it had been, had become home to all of them. We'd all felt necessary. We'd all had a place. And I think... That's one of the reasons why someone like Marie Colvin and other journalists of both sexes, obviously, do keep returning to war, even when you feel their luck's run out. They can't possibly put themselves in danger yet again. It's because, you know, they are addicted at some level to the adrenaline and to the sense of purpose. A couple of years ago, I interviewed George Alagaya. And one mm. of the first questions I wanted to ask is, how do you keep the darkness out because mm. when you've been places like and he's been to Rwanda how do you see those things and then go home and not mm. lie in bed thinking about it at night because I mean Fergal Keane diagnosed with PTSD for mm. for war reporting I mean Don McCullen has talked a lot about how mm. he found it really hard to keep a family life going yeah. and keep the the darkness out so it's it's, it's sort of an, an ongoing problem Hopefully it's being dealt with better now, but it's really interesting. It is. And so it's yeah. it's not a sort of a female psychology so much as it's it's a journalist psychology. It's, it, absolutely it is. And of all six, it was Lee Miller who suffered worst from PTSD mm. and she did have a real period of darkness. Um, she, she'd had some darkness period. before the war, though, yes, hadn't she, Yes, Lee I mean, yeah. yes, yeah. And, and she was, although... 
once she was out on the road, she seemed astonishingly tough and courageous and, and lively and rackety and beautiful. Her personality was the least robust. I mean, she'd had a terrible event in her childhood when she was raped at the age of seven. And that kind of left her inevitably scarred and complicated. And when trying to be a mother, trying to be a wife to her husband, Roland Penrose, trying to figure out what she could do with her own extraordinary creative abilities after the war. She went through a period where she wouldn't really talk about it. It was maybe partly a generational thing, partly perhaps that she was ashamed. But of course, PTSD hadn't been identified uh, as a syndrome. So, you know, the doctor she went to for advice was basically said, well, we can't keep having wars to keep you happy. Yeah. He just thought she was kind of bored. But as she said, actually, it was that she'd gone in too deep, you know, and she had been one of the first journalists and photographers to go into Dachau. And she later said, I never got the stench of Dachau out of my nostrils. And I have to say, writing that chapter, the, the concentration camp chapter was obviously the hardest thing I had to do and for me I, I felt I had to put myself through it if you see what yeah. I mean you know to experience some tiny tiny element of, of the absolute trauma that those journalists went through when they went through the gates of those camps. Now to end on a more positive yes. note what we can say is that though their lives may not have been what they were perhaps hoping for after they reported in the war by doing so they did affect the way not only that women were judged by the media, but how war reporting was actually done. So what do you think the true legacy of these women is? I think the battles they fought with the press and with the military to actually get permission to write on the war, that was really important because obviously prejudice and obstacles remained for women after the war. But having seen that it could be done, that was one obvious shining example for other women to follow. But I think to prove that women can cope with the noise and the blood and the stress and the danger of battlefield, proof that women aren't going to cause a sexual riot every time they're parachuted down into a division <laughs> of male soldiers, and proof too that the war is not an exclusively male preserve, that there are ways in which it can be written about that reflect women's sensibilities and women's experiences. The news journalists like Helen and Claire would pride themselves as being as pithy and factual as men, whereas Martha and Lee, who were writing for magazines, wrote much more subjectively and emotionally about war and about the victims of war. But all six of them, I think, because they had to struggle to get to the front lines and because they actually often had stories that were different from the men, simply because they weren't being herded around mm. within a male press corps. It meant that they formed relationships with the other soldiers. They dug out stories that had a different colour or a different heartbeat. So, yeah, it's not just the actual battles they fought to do their job, but it's the, it's the voice in which they wrote Mm. that I think has opened up the whole concept of war reporting to women. And in many ways, we talked about sort of a naivety in them sometimes. Mm. But the naivety of men around them, there's just no way that a lot of the men they were talking to would have spoken to a male journalist the way they spoke to them because exactly. they underestimated them. It's such an interesting book. It reads in many ways like a thriller, but a true thriller. So that is Great. <laughs> really impressive. Going with the boys is out on... May the 27th. May the... May... Well done, well done, you either. <laughs> That's the only fact I've managed to not write down here. And it's coming out in audiobook as well. What is your next project? I'm still mooching around on that. Okay. What I'm currently interested in is actually the pair of artist siblings, Augustus and Gwen John... Oh, who, right. Yeah. I, th I think there's been a really interesting sort of reclamation of Gwen John in recent years as the formerly overlooked sister, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm I'm interested in their relationship as siblings and how that affected their art, which I think and their lives, which was very strong. But I'm also interested in not only the way that Gwen John's 
experience and opportunities were shaped by the fact that she was a woman in a time when the art establishment was very male. But also, in a way, how Augustus John suffered from that male establishment, that the more kind of bohemian and outrageous and promiscuous he was, the more he was applauded. Mm. I'm curious to think what his life would have been like if he had been in a more bracing climate where women <laughs> just didn't lie down for yeah. him, but actually said, you know, fuck off, Gus. I'm interested in him as well, because yeah. I think in the move to reclaim Gwen, he has been demonised somewhat. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I look forward to that, given that I've read some of your views on Ernest Hemingway now, and, uh, and I applaud <laughs> them. <laughs> I mean, I love his writing, but man, yeah. was he toxic. Like, really, yeah. really toxic. Yeah. Oh, this has been fantastic, Judith. Where can people find out more about you if they would like to? Are you on Twitter or...? Uh, I am on Twitter, yeah, at Judith McCrell. Um, I don't have a website, which I should have, I know. But yeah, Twitter and occasional Instagram. Perfect. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. Now then, clearly we give you loads of stuff for your ears. And if you haven't already, you really should, one, hit subscribe so fresh aural delights are waiting for you. And two, have a fertile through our back catalogue of more than 500 podcasts. But what about your eyes? Well, dear listener, you too can be a dear reader simply by signing up for our weekly newsletter, The Bush Telegram. And yes, it is a clever play on The Bush Telegraph. Thanks for noticing. Me, Hannah and Jen take it in turns to chart bits of news that didn't make it into the pod, articles you might fancy checking out, daft YouTube videos our chats have reminded us of, and, in my case, links to cats that ski. That's right, skiing cats. Who doesn't want that in their life? It is well easy to sign up. Just visit our website, standardissuepodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom and pop your email address in the box. Then just wait for some class reading material to hit your inbox each Wednesday. Bingo bongo. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week, where we return the ball with, we hope, an adequate amount of topspin as we discuss all things women's sport. And the intro, of course, refers to the French Open, which got underway this week. I've got to be honest, I find it hard to get too excited about the French Open, or Roland Garros, if you prefer. First of all, it's at the wrong time of year, and it always rains, and it's fucking clay, so that shit just ain't tenable, as well as being messy AF. More on that surface in a minute. But also, the French crowd get really pissed and leery and are always like, and you're like, dudes... You're at the fucking tennis, not watching the darts at the Alley Pally. Have some decorum in it. No one, no one asked, but I'll tell you anyway, Wimbledon is my favourite, Ovs. Then the Australian Open would be second, but the time difference is a ball ache, so it's the US Open by default. They've got a roof on Philippe Chatrier Court now, apparently, so that's something, I guess. They had one last year, I think. I'd had a baby. I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, let's talk about clay courts for a minute. They're shit, and I shall tell you for why very slow they take the pace off the ball so as i alluded to in my surprisingly technical intro you have to use a bit of top spin also no one really plays on clay except the spanish that's why nadal is so successful at the french open spanish check good at the baseline check it's the most boring style of play if you ask me but there you have it before i convince you not to watch you should because it's better than nothing and sport is having a bit of a hard time at the moment so you know be kind to it and while you can absolutely predict the winner of the men's draw spoiler alert it's nadal the women's side is as ever very open no pun intended in fact in the last decade there have been eight different winners maria sharapova and serena williams both won it twice during that time period so let me start there at the obvious place serena williams is not going to win this it's her worst surface she's not played very much this year and her current form is bad I will eat my hat if she wins it. But the good thing about the women's draw, especially at the French Open, is that sometimes you get a complete rando winning it. 
Garbanier Muguruza won her first Grand Slam there. Simona Halep, admittedly, that was a long time coming. Ashley Barty, Lee Na, Yelena Ostapenko, Iga Swiatek, who won last year. All first-time Grand Slam wins. So who is actually good on clay? Well, Simona Halep is ranked best on clay. She's number one according to the WTA's clay power rankings, third currently in the general rankings. Kiki Bertins is next, Karolina Pliskova, Elena Svitolina, then Petra Kvitova follow. But, very sadly, Halep has had to withdraw from the tournament last week owing to a calf injury, and Pliskova got absolutely spanked in the Italian Open final a couple of weeks ago by none other than Sviatek, currently sixth in the clay power rankings. She bageled Pliskova in that match, which means she failed to win a single game. Ashley Barty is seventh, but Barty retired from the Italian Open in the quarterfinal mid-match against Coco Goff, so I'm not sure what's going on with her at the moment. So if you want my predictions, I reckon the smart money's on Iga Sviatek. I think she'll defend her title. But fortunately, the women's side of the draw is famously unpredictable, as I've already said. So there's my caveat for inevitably getting it wrong. None of the women I've spoken about here are Spanish, by the way, apart from Garbinier Muguruza. The French Open is already happening. The qualifiers are currently underway, but it begins in earnest as of May the 30th. And you can watch all of it on the Eurosport player and some of it on ITV4. Before I head off... Big congrats to massive Olympic hopes for Team GB, Dina Asher-Smith and Laura Muir, who you may remember I spoke about last week. They were both victorious at the Diamond League season opener on Sunday in Gateshead. Asher-Smith took an excellent win in the 100 metres, beating Shikari Richardson of the US by 0.11 seconds. Muir led the way in the 1500 metres, four seconds ahead of Rababi Arafi of Morocco, and in third place was Katie Snowden her GB teammate. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film had us drawing pentagrams on our teenage bedroom floor this week? This week, we watched 1996's The Craft, written by men, Peter Falardi and Andrew Fleming, directed by a man, Andrew Fleming, and produced by a man, Douglas Wick, but starring mostly women and a few creepy crawlies. One of the many teen films of that era, The Craft was seen as something slightly different rather than being about those in the sort of upper echelons of teen society. I'm thinking Cruel Intentions and Clueless, for example. This one focused on the social misfits. Although that's a bit unfair, even as I've said it, because lots of teen films do have a misfit, but this was like more about... A collection of misfits. Is that the iconic line from The Craft is, we are the weirdos, mister? Exactly. Sarah, played by Robin Tunney, is a troubled girl. He's moved to LA from San Francisco with her dad and stepmom and quickly makes the acquaintance of Bonnie. 90s teenager du jour, Nev Campbell. Rochelle, played by Rachel True, who was 30 years old, if my maths and Wikipedia are correct. And Nancy, played by Feruza Bulk. She doesn't look 30, though, does she? no. But that maybe that's because we think everyone who goes to American high school is 30, because that's <laughs> yeah. the, the, the sort of average age of actors playing. They're all like James Vanderbeek, who apparently had to shave twice a day to look as fresh-faced as Dawson required. Anyway. Oh, sorry, I did my Dawson crying face, and you both missed <laughs> Do it. Do it again. Do it again. Oh, great. Lovely I've never stuff. seen Dawson's Creek. Have you not? I don't no, think it's for you, Hannah. Nothing. Yeah, I, I don't think you'll get much out of it, to be honest. Anyway, the trio are said to be witches, and actually, they are, but not in the natural sense like Sarah, it transpires, and more in a kind of man-made witchery, because the trio are all living miserable existences prior to calling the four corners of whatever it is they call. Rochelle is the target of racist bullying, played by a girl with a really weird mouth, who I would have just bullied straight back, to be honest. I think that's, and I can't remember her name, what's her face from Arrested Development, who is... Um, Portia uh, de Rossi. Ben, no, Ben Stiller's wife. Yes, it is, mm. I think. She is also in The Brady Bunch. She's quite a famous actress. But yeah, she was name. in The Brady Bunch, you're right. Nancy lives in a trailer with her mum and her mum's abusive boyfriend, and Bonnie is covered in burns and longing for nothing more than to wear a short skirt and long socks, as teenagers <laughs> in the 90s did. Luckily, when they join forces, she gets her wish after they invoke the spirit of Manon, a godly kind of spirit who makes them all very powerful. Powerful enough for Rochelle to make her foe look like Terry Nutkins in Retribution, and I'm talking about the hair, she didn't set a romp of otters on her, <laughs> for Bonnie's yeah. scars to disappear, and for Sarah 
Sarah to get a complete penis, Chris, played by 90s heartthrob Skeet Ulrich, to fall in love with her, and for Nancy to go absolutely fucking boo But, as is so often the case in life, it's all fun and games until someone gets tricked into accidentally shagging the wrong person after they morph into them and then falls out of the window in horror and dies. And... To be honest, Nancy's becoming an absolute bellend. A power struggle ensues, but does Sarah have the light to overcome Nancy's darkness, etc.? It's Mean Girls before Mean Girls, but it's not funny and it's quite dark. It's Mean Girls and their mean snakes, perhaps. While we're on the subject of snakes, I should probably point out that the special effects used in this film were not a hit, with some critics responding negatively to them. In general, it was not particularly well received by critics, though many lauded elements of the film, which I'm sure we'll come on to, like having four female leads, being about teenage girls specifically, and misfits, etc. It didn't do that much business at the time of release in the box office, but it became more popular in later years, earning it cult status, and a sequel last year, which in fairness, like many others last year, went straight to streaming rather than getting a theatrical release. I was probably about 15 by the time I saw this. I think it was on video and it took fucking ages for anything to get to video at that point so I reckon that's roughly how old I was had either of you seen this before it was all new to me no I'd never seen it before I just have to say I find it funny that I have literally started this and since then I've become covered in cats (laughs) it's your witchery she's a witch witch. it is and there's Joan I remember enjoying it well enough, but not being wild about it, though I did know girls who were and must have in some way, I guess, found it empowering. I don't know. I think I found it maybe a bit scary, but I can't really remember. It certainly didn't make a lasting impression on me. It's billed as a Um, horror, isn't it? So that would have put me off. It's billed as a supernatural horror. It isn't scary. It's a bit jumpy. Yeah. I, I didn't find it scary watching it again, but I feel like I... I sort of vaguely remember finding it a little bit scary when I was 15. So, guys, how how did you how do you feel about it? I mean, we're not the target audience, I think it's fair to say. I I I wasn't wild about it when I was the target audience, but yeah. It's mad, isn't it? It's a mad film. It's it's a lot. It's a lot and Bulk who plays Nancy, she does a lot of like big eyes and big face and big mouth and she's got a really big mouth and like her lipstick was the, the maddest thing I've ever seen. She goes full on Willem Dafoe in a lot of this, <laughs> like where, where her mouth appears to be 75% of her yes, face. Yes, agreed. She actually smiles like my sister and wears her makeup a bit like our Isla used to as well. So I was quite fond of her until she gets quite out of hand. I, I, that's an understatement, isn't it? She gets rapey and then kills someone. So that is very much out of hand. I did want to actually bring up Farooza Bulk, who plays Nancy. She was a practising pagan at the time of filming, fact fans, um, and I think she was very well cast, because I don't know if it is her makeup or her facial expressions, but she looks, like, almost demonic some of the time, and I thought that was quite good. And I think it is quite interesting. It's not it's not for us, I don't think it's a no, film it's aimed not. at us at all, but I thought it made some fairly interesting points that it wasn't wasn't quite good enough to carry off but I thought were really interesting so she goes mad and basically she is considered white trash she's also been abused and used by this guy and there are boys in the class who refer to her as the snail trail which is just fucking horrific and they call her a witch all the time and she has had no power so yes that's what she wishes for when they make different wishes they feel quite quite small I guess some of their wishes oh I want the boy I like to fall for me I want to look pretty we'll touch on Rochelle's wanting to get back at her racist bully which is really interesting but then yeah Nancy doesn't make anything specific apart from I want all of the power and it's because she's never had any and I think that is quite an interesting thing and then she doesn't know how to control it and goes mad I was going to ask you specifically about that because Despite her being a twat, I feel quite sorry for her at the end because I think you're right. She has no power, oh, and, that's and she is that's horrific at the end in the institute. The most like tragic, really, of all of them, isn't it's, she? It's bizarre, isn't it, that she wants that bloke to fall in love with her yes. when he's been a total prick to her. Yes, mm-hmm. what? I, but I that's teenage girls. And exactly, exactly. I was like, it? I was like, I was a so, teenage girl. I was so angry about it because I was just like, he's such a 
fucking awful prick but it is that's probably what you would or what a lot of girls would want at that age like they don't necessarily see I that and they change just change him she says to her dad i think he was a good guy underneath all of it no mate he was a bell end and he just stayed a bell end you shouldn't have killed him though i mean she is intensely wet and irritating i think as as a as the lead what do you I think i think she's terrible and she's wearing an appalling wig and also when I interviewed Julie Geary recently, she was talking about how it really impressed her that actors do such a great job when they're acting at nothing. Because that thing's not going to be there yet. This beast, this fire, this whatever isn't going to be there. It's going to be laid on in effects. And maybe it's forgivable because these are the early days of effects. But their acting with effects is appalling. They're not looking at the thing they're supposed to be looking at. There's a bit where she's running through the house scared and she's just looking all around her. And it looks like something out of the 1940s. It doesn't look like something from the 1990s in terms of acting. I thought her acting was pretty shite. Oh, come on now. I can't believe you're having a little diss at the acting and the effects. The bit where she changes her hair colour from brown to blonde. (laughs) It's just literally so badly superimposed on her head. Pissed myself laughing. I don't think that was supposed to be the desired results, but I had a nice chuckle. The sound design in this is appalling as well. I had to continually turn it up and down because the music was so loud and yet the talking was so quiet. I had to have it on 60 to hear the talking and three when the music (laughs) was on. I wanted to ask as well about the point. Now, I thought this was quite interesting because I seem to remember at the time a lot of teen films again like cruel intentions uh the other one that nev campbell's in wild things things like that there's quite a lot of when there are girls in films sort of schoolgirl age like older teenagers i thought they steered really really clear of making any of them particularly sexual which i thought was a good thing i don't know if any of you thought that. I, I agree they've not sexualized them beyond their years really even when Nev, I would have called her Neve, but Nev Campbell's character wants to be beautiful because she's had these scars her whole life. And she comes in in her short skirt and her knee-high socks and her little T-shirt, but she's not tits and ass out. And the, the reaction is, oh, you look pretty, from even the like horrible seedy guys, mm. rather than it being... OTT, there's no gratuitous boobs, there's there's nothing like that. And I think, yeah, the, a lot of the time that is just chucked in for salacious reasons and it doesn't do that. Yeah, I thought that was a big plus and I think that a lot of other filmmakers quite possibly would have had something in there. So it, it felt like it was actually made for young girls as well, like teenage yeah. girls. I felt the need to just mention, because you've listed quite a lot of films, but this came after Heather's. Yes, And Heather's did, was very much a kids on the outside, you yeah. know, the outsider kids as well. Although this is obviously no Heathers. I mean, I feel bad mentioning them in the same sentence, but they, you have And it. yet lots of reviews do, uh-huh. so I wouldn't worry too much. There's something that we've touched on a couple of times, but not covered properly, and that is Rochelle is, like, bullied by a racist. Like, I went, whoa, with the sentence mm. that she says. I'm not going to repeat it, but it is horrific, and I went, whoa. And it's interesting, because it isn't just a token throwing that aside. It's used as a plot point, and it's used as part of what drives the plot forward. And I think it's it's great that she is given that to do and that to tackle and it's taken seriously. But what I would say is that aside from that, her and Neve Campbell don't really get very much to do. No. And their personality changes. When Nancy yes. goes bad, they just fall in line behind her. Mm-hmm. But the scene where they're laughing in the back of the car, I'm like, they could just be played by two stuffed mannequins and a tape recorder of two people laughing. And it isn't explained know. why they suddenly go along with it. You're like, oh, well, she sort of bewitched them. And then they yeah. say no to her. And you're like, oh, no, that would have made sense. But they clearly aren't under her control. They've just turned their characters have totally turned around, which is a bit strange. Yeah, I think they just, I don't know. I guess I took from that that they were just, you know punch drunk on all the power that they had and they were just they were just loving their newfound power basically that's what i took from it but yeah they do turn into like dickheads don't they and it is weird that only one of them sort of gets a bit like oh i've actually killed some people now guys uh maybe this has gone too far yeah i think what is really good and it it's again it's not a film for me wasn't a fan but it's really good that there is obviously the the slight romantic element and i'm putting that in bunny ears 
of her wanting Chris and therefore putting this spell on him that means he becomes obsessed with her and a stalker to the point where it gets massively out of hand. But actually, there is also a real focus on their friendship. So the scene at the sleepover where they're doing the whole light as a feather, stiff as a board trick to get Rochelle to levitate. And then they're all just giggling. There is a nice focus on the female friendship, which I guess is supposed to give it more of an impact when that all goes tits up when Nancy becomes the dark overlord. But yeah, that was nice that there isn't loads of focus on them chasing boys. It is all about the girls. And she does, when she says it, she does kind of go like, oh, what was the like yeah. me? Like she, she sort of knows she's been a dick. I don't understand why then, when he does like her, why does she reject him? It's it's getting her own back, I, I guess. All of their quite small wishes, even Nancy's like wish for power, I think the whole point is they don't realise how big they will come true or what the consequences will be. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Women who have had nothing or want a tiny bit of power, which all of them want. They want power over how they look or power over a boy they like or power because they've been told they've got no money and they're going to get nowhere or they want power over someone who's bullying them and they all get punished. It's like you ask for a little bit, women, and what you will get is negative threefold which I think is an interesting moral to give to young girls that I'm not necessarily mm. on board with. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I do think it is quite different to other films of that era in that it does put the girls at, at the centre of it and, and not in a sort of sexualised way and not in a, like, you know, it's not all about men, as you say, Mick, it's about their friendship. Um, do you think it is a feminist film? Because there is also quite a lot of pitting women against women in it. Just no. I don't think it's a feminist film. But I think it could have been so much better. It's one of those films that's annoying because it it's mad to watch. It's a real, like, fucking hell, what am I watching? But there's something there, and then you feel mm. a bit more disappointed because it is just thrown away. Uh, so I think it, it isn't, but I can see why you would ask that question. Okay. Hmm. Well, then, guys, is it rated or dated? Dated. Yeah, it's dated. I don't actually think it is dated particularly, but I think it is not a great film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just more waistcoats over T-shirts. Big look in the 90s. Big look. I, I was my go-to look when I first started going to the pub was a little white T-shirt with a waistcoat over it. Poor little Nick, what was she thinking? I dabbled with waistcoats when they made a little resurgence <laughs> in the early noughties. But, um, yeah, I hope that was on your CV for a bit. Jen Offord dabbles with waistcoats. Nick, it's your turn next. What are we watching at your behest? We are going to watch The Parent Trap, but not the Lindsay Lohan one, the original one. Who's that got in it? It's got Hayley Mills in it in a dual role. Ooh, twins, mystery, confusion. (laughs) I like that face. Thanks. Standard issue for all women.